Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Michael Reed Show. Wednesday morning, the 2nd of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish border has proved to be the biggest obstacle in reaching a Brexit deal. The solution to the border problem now may be the establishment of two borders. The Daily Telegraph is reporting today that the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is to unveil what they call a radical new two borders for four years Brexit plan, which would leave Northern Ireland in a special relationship with Europe until 2025. The plan, the Telegraph reports, will accept the need for both a regulatory border between the UK and Northern Ireland in the Irish Sea for four years and customs checks a second border on the island of Ireland. The plan effectively would see the UK as a whole remaining in the EU until the end of 2021. At that point, Northern Ireland would remain aligned with the EU single market rules for industrial goods, agri-food products and live animals until 2025. But Northern Ireland would leave the EU Customs Union with the rest of the UK and the EU's VAT and excise arrangements. So two borders, one in the middle of the Irish Sea and two on the island of Ireland, uh, which they say would be permanent. Let's hear from the Minister for European Affairs, Fine Gael TD for me, East Helen McEntee, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thanks good morning, for joining Michael. us. Uh, I know that uh, you're not willing uh, to contemplate uh, these plans, uh, but uh, as we understand it, uh, it would change again in 2025 because the Assembly in Northern Ireland, assuming it's up and running by then, uh, would decide on whether uh, the North should remain within the EU as such or return to Britain as such. Uh, But is there not a third border uh, to talk about? They're talking about two borders for four years, uh, but they're also talking about a buffer zone between the border on the island of Ireland, uh, which would mean effectively two borders on this island. Well, uh, good morning, Michael. I suppose I can only speculate in the same way as you in that I have only seen these reports in the past 12 hours. Um, Nothing has actually been presented to the Commission and nothing has been sent in a legal text or a proposal um, that we are aware of yet. We know that obviously uh, about a week and a half ago, a 
a non-paper or an ideas paper were given and was given to the Commission, which floated some of the ideas that you've talked about, specifically having uh, regulatory alignment in the area of agri-food products, but where it didn't go far enough was in terms of manufactured goods, because obviously agricultural products only account for about 30% of the trade moving north and south. Okay, I think the Prime Minister has said that the report in the Telegraph may not be completely accurate, but the Telegraph has reported that uh, EU capitals were briefed on this yesterday. Well, again, I suppose what we're hearing is reports, um, and I have not heard from any of my colleagues in the EU that this has been the case. And obviously, based on a number of different stories that we've heard, not just from The Telegraph, but yesterday from uh, Tony Connolly of RTE, reports have said one thing, and the Prime Minister has then said something different, as have members of his cabinet and other members of government. So really, I mean, while I can speculate and you can speculate, Mm if what is being proposed at the moment is actually a proposal that's going to be put down, it simply won't work and it won't work on the basis that there are four very clear commitments that the UK made. It's to prevent border infrastructure, but that also covers any associated checks. So whether they're on the border or away from the border, that commitment is there. It's to protect the all-island economy. And if you take Northern Ireland out, or if, if, if you take Northern Ireland out of the customs union and insist on customs barriers, then you completely disrupt the flow of our economy, but also in terms of protecting the single market and our place in it and the areas of cooperation, they suddenly become much more difficult with all of this disruption. So, I mean, if this is what, and again, I have to Mm. say if, because I don't know, if this is what is being proposed, it does not fulfil any of the commitments that they have already made. It doesn't go far enough. And, and, you know, while we have to look and, and absolutely say that we will examine any proposals, to me, it's not something that would be acceptable. Okay. If it's a take-it-or-leave-it proposal, which we're also being told from reports will be the case, uh, will the response from the Irish government be that we'll leave it? Well, I think there are a number of things that could play out here. Uh, We have two weeks until the European Council meet. Um, We do know that there is a piece of legislation that was enacted. It's now not just a bill. It is an act. It is a piece of law that if the Prime Minister does not have a deal by the 19th of October and the European Council meets on the 17th. If he does not have a deal by the 19th, then he is legally required to seek an extension. Now, again, there are suggestions that he would not, but, uh, you know, my understanding is it is a piece of legislation and it is something that he will have to follow. Uh, If that is the case, then Mm. if there is a request for an extension, I think from our point of view, and, and I've probably said this to you many times, if we are faced with the chance of a no deal, as opposed to an extension, while an extension is not good for business, it's not good for individuals, it doesn't create certainty. In fact, Mm. it creates more uncertainty. We would choose an extension over a no deal. But obviously... But we may not have that choice uh, because 27 countries would have to agree to a request from the UK for an extension. Uh, And Mr Johnson may convince somebody like Victor Orban uh, to say no. Well, again, my understanding, and and I had my Hungarian colleague um, over in Ireland last week, actually, and I had a very good discussion with him, and there has been absolutely no change in their position, and and that is obviously just one country. But Mm. in my dialogue with my colleagues, there has never been a sense or an indication, or indeed whether or not Prime Minister Johnson has in fact asked them to try and veto that. But I do not believe that would be the case. I think EU Mm. solidarity is as strong as it ever was. But you're right, we cannot simply agree to an extension because we might want one. We have to be asked first by the Prime Minister and then it has to be agreed to by all member states. I think there are some, obviously, 
who are getting fatigued. I think we are mm. all somewhat fatigued because if you seek an extension without any real change, without any real reason to do so, then all you're doing is prolonging what is a significant challenge for people, particularly, I mean, you only have to look at what's happening in agriculture at the mm. moment. I've just spent uh, the last hour with the retail sector here in Ireland. These are two of the sectors that are already being impacted by the uncertainty, never mind a potential no deal. So, Okay, and by law, by law, the Prime Minister is required to seek an extension, but he, he could seek that extension, as we heard yesterday, and then lawfully rescind that request. Well, I mean, if he seeks that extension and it's approved, my understanding is that the, the, the no, but he could send out the letters and then send out uh, another letter immediately rescinding it, uh, withdrawing the request so that he'd have made the request as required by law and then lawfully decide, I, I, I don't want to go ahead with it. Well, I suppose this is the challenge that we face. And as I've said, there are many who would suggest that the Prime Minister will not or that there would be a legal loophole. And this is, again, something that has been suggested could happen. Um, I don't know what the kind of... Uh, options are there. I suppose the legislation was put in place to ensure that there was, uh, well, I'm assuming was put in place with the anticipation that there would be no way around it. But I, I don't know the intricacies of what may or may not happen. Um, all I know is that there is a legal requirement for the Prime Minister to seek an extension. And if that extension is sought, I would hope, uh, and I think on the basis that we are facing a no-deal is the only other option, that there would be an extension. Uh, but again, as I've said, there's a lot of suggestions that there may be various different ways as to how that the, the Prime Minister mm. could circumvent that. But I, I don't fully know, and I don't think any of us fully understand uh, what that might be or, or what that might look like. We okay, have to well, on the well, basis of, of, of the information that we have, and that is legally he is required. Well, what, we, what we, we do know from the Prime Minister, Minister is that there will be checks on the island of Ireland. Uh, and we'll just briefly hear what Boris Johnson said to the BBC about this yesterday. Because that's just the reality. And I think that what we're coming up to now is, as it were, the, the critical moment of, of choice for us as friends and partners about how we proceed. Because in the end, a uh, sovereign united country must have a single customs territory. Just the reality of the situation, Minister. Well, I think we have to go back to the fact that the Prime Minister, as a previous minister in the Cabinet with Theresa May, agreed to the withdrawal agreement, agreed and signed off on the commitments which prevented any kind of barriers, but also any kind of checks, be they customs or otherwise. And as recently as his appointment as Prime Minister, he gave commitments to protect the Good Friday Agreement and integral to that is preventing any kind of reintroduction of border infrastructure. So I think if there are to be checks mm. in the event of a no deal, it is because the UK have decided that but, there will be. It but, is you, not but you know the argument uh, from the British side, Minister, and sorry for cutting across you, but the argument is very simply, we put it to Parliament, they said no, we put it a second time, they said no, three times. In fact, Parliament rejected May's deal. Uh, and we're being told today that what is about to be proposed will be a take-it-or-leave-it offer. And if it's rejected... Well, what will happen then? Uh, that's a, a question that was asked of uh, the chairman of uh, the Conservative Party, James Cleverley, on the BBC this morning. This is what he had to say. 
Well, negotiations of this type always, uh, and not just with the EU. I've said in the past, negotiations with the EU always go to the 11th hour. To be fair, negotiations of this complexity, whether they're political, commercial, um, always, always, always go to the 11th hour. And, and this is where we are now, and this is where the Prime Minister is making it clear that this is the time for that pragmatism and flexibility, because if we can't get a deal over the line this point, we are going to leave without a deal. Is that what's going to happen, do you think, Minister? Well, I think what I need to be clear in saying here is that we've spent three years negotiating. The EU has been flexible. The EU has compromised. The EU has acted in good faith. And throughout that entire time, every single leader from individual member states has gone back to their country, explained what it is that we have been doing, explained the process, and made sure that at the end of that process, when this agreement was agreed, not just by the Prime Minister, but indeed by our Cabinet, of which the Prime Minister was, the current Prime Minister was a, a then Minister, that it was understood. Um, I think you cannot negotiate with a Parliament when you are mm. negotiating such a deal of this size. I mean, yes, you do see that some negotiations come down to the wire, and that's often the case. However, simply put, the idea that Ireland or the EU would be forced to accept something that is a million miles from what was committed to, a million miles from what was already agreed to, mm. uh, and that we would essentially commit to um, a non-legally binding commitment to try and find a solution, to find a way around the problems that we all say that we want to address. Minister Helen McEntee. is not something that I can accept, and I don't think this government nor the EU can accept. Minister Helen McEntee, you often talk about squaring circles, something which is physically impossible. Uh, but What's the point in uh, trying uh, to avoid something if the result of that effort is exactly what you were trying to avoid? Uh, And if we say no to Britain uh, leaving on the basis that they're proposing now because we don't want a hard border on this island, the result is a hard border on this island, is it not? Well, I think, again, we have to go back to the fact that we don't know if this is a final offer or what, in fact, is going to be even presented to the European Commission. What we do know, however... But if it is, if they leave without a deal, Minister, and again, apologies for talking over over you, but if they leave without a deal, the result has to be a hard border, doesn't it? No, it doesn't, and, and that's what we're working on at the moment. If what What the UK are proposing at the moment is infrastructure, it's divergence in regulations, it's not in any way going to protect the all-island economy, our economy or the peace process. What would happen in the event of a no-deal would certainly be damage limitations and what our objectives would be is to protect the invisible border and to ensure that there is no risk or threat to people or the Good Friday Agreement while also protecting the single market. It doesn't protect um, the all-island economy. It doesn't protect the areas of cooperation north and south. It's damage limitation. However, as you rightly said, you know, the question has been put, the very thing you're trying to avoid then becomes uh, somewhat of a reality and that there will have to be checks somewhere and you do not protect all of the items that you have tried to over the past three years. From my point of view, you cannot spend three years negotiating in good faith with the country, accepting compromises, inserting much of what the the UK have asked for into that agreement. And after three years, then be told that that does not work, 
that it's not acceptable to the mm. UK and that they want us to remove it and replace it with no guarantee or commitment. I don't think that's how negotiations work. I don't think that's how the EU should be negotiating with the UK, with mm. the EU. And I think we need to try and engage. I, I, you know, that, I, I that paints a picture of a win-win situation for the British government. Uh, if uh, they do a deal, it'll be on uh, their proposal. If they don't do a deal, uh, the result will be the same. Well, I think we want a deal and I think we need to ensure that the deal protects uh, people on this island, but also that the UK live up to their commitments. The UK are talking about doing trade deals with the rest of the world. They're talking about engaging with the rest of the world. I think it's extremely important that if that is the case, they show the rest of the world that they can engage in negotiations, that they can act in good faith and that they can live up to commitments that they have made many, many times not just to Ireland, but to the EU as a whole. And I think we have to negotiate on that basis. We cannot compromise when it comes to people's safety. We cannot mm. compromise. What do we have to negotiate with, though? I mean, what's our ace card? If they don't get their way, they get their way. Or is there something wrong with that statement? I mean, is the outcome not the same either way? Well, again, we're speculating. We have had no proposals. We do not know if this is a final offer. We know that there is a legal requirement for the Prime Minister to seek an extension. So, I mean, there are a lot of uh, scenarios that could play out between now and the 31st of October. I think increasingly now, as time moves on, even if a deal were to be found in the next two weeks, the time frame to actually uh, pass that through and implement it, it's not there. There would be a requirement for a smaller extension per se, But again, this is all speculation based on papers that we uh, are are being told are are true, being Mm -hmm. told by others they're not, but the Commission have yet to see any concrete proposals. And and I cannot stress, I mean, from our point of view, we have had from the very, very beginning of this process, and we have been consistent throughout four key objectives, protect the peace process, to minimise the damage to our economy, to ensure our place as part of the European Union and a close relationship with the UK, but also to protect the common travel area. And I think based on their red lines of leaving the single market and the customs union, but also their own commitments to us and the peace process, the withdrawal agreement and the backstop is still the best way to do that, whether it's called the backstop, whether it's, you know, whatever format it takes. It is still the best way for us well, to ensure that we get a deal. We'll get some clarity, I think, uh, a little bit later on today. Uh, Mr Johnson is uh, to address uh, the Conservative Party and uh, as part of uh, that speech, uh, he'll uh, endorse uh, the detail of, of uh, what has been proposed uh, to the European Commission. But we'll leave it there for the moment, Minister. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's the Minister for European Affairs and me, the East TD for Fine Gael, Helen Mac- the Michael Reed Show with Airgrid. Now to some pretty serious concerns about a large number of deceased and deformed fish that have been found in the rivers Castletown, the Boyne, the Fane and the Dee in County Louth. It's an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by local Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock. In this, the year of the International Year of the Salmon on the rivers that I referred to, Two, can the Minister outline the actions that the Department are taking or are willing to take to identify the disease? Has the Minister any plan of action for this situation? Can the Minister find out if the problem will, as suspected, cause cross-species to occur? Has the Minister any plans to implement biosecurity measures to stop the spread of this disease? 
or does the Minister think that biosecurity measures are not necessary in this case? The concerned fishing clubs in the North East wish to know is it harmful to humans? And finally, has the Minister any knowledge or information of the spread of disease from salmon farms on the west coast of Scotland to the wild stocks on the rivers on the east coast? I thought, Count Corley, in conclusion uh, to my first uh, question to the Minister, that it was no coincidence that uh, other members had a topic here this evening in relation to uh, rabbit uh, hemorrhagic disease. And my suspicion from researching some of this is that this disease that the fishermen are concerned about appears to be, and maybe you'd correct me if I'm wrong, ulceral uh, dermal necrosis. And for anybody who doesn't know what necrosis is, I'm familiar with it myself. It's a rotting of the flesh. Uh, rotting of the flesh is never good. So a very serious uh, question uh, from local TD, Declan Brannock. Uh, Minister Michael Creed uh, responded to it, saying he, he was aware of uh, the situation and had some advice for fishermen. Anglers and fish, fishery owners were asked to report incidents of salmon with rash-like symptoms to help determine the scale of the problem nationally. I am advised by IFI that salmon first began appearing in Irish rivers with these symptoms in early June and by mid-June. There were reports of fish with ulceration in at least six rivers, both on the east and west coast of Ireland. The salmon who are affected show signs of bleeding, ulceration and hemorrhaging, mainly along the area of the belly of the fish and on the head and the tail. Secondary fungal infection normally sets in and can result in death. IFI advice that until the cause of the disease was determined and the risk of spreading the disease established, affected salmon should not be removed from the water. Any anglers who captured salmon with these symptoms were advised to follow normal biosecurity procedures and disinfect, tackle, waders and equipment. IFI set up a dedicated email, salmon.symptoms at fisheriesireland.ie, for anglers to report any incident of disease, disease salmon encountered in Irish rivers and provide photographs. Anglers were also advised to contact Inland Fisheries Ireland's 24-hour confidential hotline number on 1890 34 74 24 or 1890 FISH 24 in this regard. Minister Creed responding uh, to local Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock. Now, Wednesday morning, that means uh, the local newspapers are in your shops. We have them in front of us. Marie Kearns is with me to tell us what's on the front pages of the papers uh, this week. And we begin in County Meath, where the Chronicle is reporting about the impact locally that uh, the restructuring of guarded divisions will have. That's right, Michael. And Anne Casey is reporting that a public meeting of the Meath Joint Policing Committee on October 16th will be the first opportunity, really, that the people of Meath will will get to question the Garda top brass about the consequences of the merger of the Meath and West Meath divisions. Uh, meanwhile, bridging the generations is a strapline over a lovely picture on page one of Kitty Quirk with little pal Sadie Lines. Sadie's from the Happy Days Preschool in Rathoth, and they got time to spend together as part of the children's regular visits to Rathoth Manor Nursing Home. Michael, the school has been visiting residents there for over the past two years, 
and they take part in various activities the kids bring Play-Doh and Lego and make jewellery for their older friends. It it sounds like a wonderful initiative helping to break down barriers between the young and the old and if you read the story on page 10 by Sally Harding it'll really make you smile. Okay, well I think people in Black Rock will be smiling at uh, the success uh, that they've received recently. Black Rock is looking great and uh, that's uh, the story really, isn't it? It is and Mm. it's it's the story everywhere in Dundalk this week um, on the papers and I suppose the victory the the Argus is reporting is all the sweeter as this year's competition had attracted a record 918 entries. So thrilled that Black Rock was named Ireland's tidiest small town and needless to say there's been great celebrations in the village. Inside the paper there's a two-page spread detailing the election expenses of the candidates from the Dundalk area who ran in the recent local elections. Interestingly the biggest spender was Owen Daly of the Green Party who spent 7,444 euro of which 5,663 came out of his own pocket but failed to get elected. Fine Gael Councillor John McGahan was the next big spender forking out 6,648 euro all of which came out of his own resources. By contrast his party colleague Councillor Maria Doyle spent just 934 euro the lowest of any of the successful candidates. Okay, and uh, a significant uh, difference uh, in uh, the sums uh, that are being reported on there too. The Democrat in Dundalk, and again BlackRock is uh, the main centre of attention. Yes, Uh, but it it was a story on page um, inside the paper uh, that caught my eye. Tia Clark is reporting on page five. Uh, it's it's Little Hill Animal Rescue uh, uh, and Sanctuary and they're calling on loud locals to adopt hens, Michael, if you fancy it. Because the san- sanctuary will bring hundreds of res- rescued egg-laying hens to Dundalk for adoption. And the charity is appealing to kind-hearted people living in the town and surrounding areas to offer a happy home to those unfortunate little creatures who otherwise will be sent to the slaughterhouse. Susan Anderson from Little Hill told the paper we began rescuing hens a few years ago as I hated the fact that most commercial chickens are killed without ever knowing a moment of compassion or even seeing the outside world. So Saturday October 19th if you fancy adopting one Michael. Okay well uh, in Dundalk uh, as you say BlackRock <laughs> dominates all of the papers yes. no difference with uh, the leader but it's uh, a local person's very right. great ability that you're focusing on. That's right on page one the papers also reporting that golfer Brendan Lawler from Loud Village has turned professional after enjoying a stellar year on the European Disability Golf Association Tour. The 22-year-old is currently number three in the official world rankings for golfers with a disability and this season won the German Disabled Open. So well done to him. All right, we're going to finish with the front page of the Drogheda Independent and a little girl who's hoping to get home for Christmas. That's right. This is a story we actually covered on the show last week. The plight of Hannah Donnelly who's made the front page of the Drogheda Independent as her family make one last impassioned plea to get their beloved daughter and sister home for Christmas. Known affectionately as Hannah the Warrior Princess, the only obstacle stopping Hannah from going home is full-time full is government funding as she will need 24-7 home care supports. So hopefully that might happen for Hannah. Meanwhile, if you have a child who starts school this year, be sure to check out the Drought Independent, which features a 16-page special inside. Lots of pictures there. Okay, great stuff. Thank you for that, Marie. The Michael Reed Show.
Well, we'll talk about uh, the homeless figures once uh, again with Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest who's been working uh, with uh, the homeless and it would seem more and more of them month on month. For the seventh month in a row, the figure has exceeded 10,000 people who are officially homeless in this country. Good morning to you, Peter, and thanks uh, as always for joining us uh, with this all-too-familiar story. We were talking with the Children's Rights Alliance yesterday uh, about how this had moved off the front pages uh, and has been normalised to some degree. Are you concerned about that? Hey, I am. It's uh, once the 10,000, the 10,000 uh, homeless, uh, it's not actually a 10,000 homeless, but that we'll come mm. to that in a minute. Yeah. But once the 10,000 mark was reached, uh, it became normalised again. We were all waiting for a few months for this 10,000 to come. The department were manipulating the figures to make sure it didn't reach 10,000. But eventually it did, and now we've settled back again. <clears throat> and 10,000 now becomes the the sort of benchmark. I remember when the number of homeless children passed 1,000, mm. there was uproar. It was on the front pages of the media. It yeah. was on every uh, radio and television uh, news item. Uh, and the, the government were, were scrambling to, uh, to to try and say that they're, they're, go- they're working on this and it's going to improve. And our, our focus yesterday... The number of 2,000 mm-hmm. hardly got a mention. Then yeah. it passed 3,000. <laughs> Yeah. And it got even less of it. close on 4,000 now, yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, our, our focus yesterday, obviously, with the Children's Rights Alliance was yeah. on the children. 3,848 on that official list, as you say. Uh, there's far more people who uh, would consider themselves to be without a home who aren't on the official homelessness. Uh, but they were talking uh, about the possibility of taking a, a complaint to the European Human Rights Commission. They were also talking about a constitutional challenge because of the referendum on children's rights and that this would be a violation of their human rights and it's an incredible amount of children as you say uh, just in the last month 70 children uh, as uh, their legal advisor pointed out to us yesterday that would be the equivalent of two or three classrooms that in itself is a scandal let alone nearly 4,000 children yeah actually we we have to uh, analyse those figures very carefully it wasn't an extra 70 children becoming homeless last month right? because there were 100 families exited out of homelessness Homelessness. Mm, and mm, if each family had, say, on average, one and a half children, mm, mm. that means uh, 150 children exited homelessness. The number still went up by 70, which means that 220 children last month experienced the trauma of becoming homeless. Mm. Uh, so the, the, yep. the, the figure is, is, is shocking. I would suspect that we've had over 10,000 children over the last couple of years who have actually experienced the trauma of homelessness. And that will stay with them all their lives. It uh, may stay with them. Our children are very resilient. Mm. Some of them will get over it. Mm. But the longer you stay in emergency accommodation, the more damage it is doing to you. And some of them won't get over it. Some of them are going to end up in our hospitals. Some of them are going to end up in in, in the drug culture. Uh, because they are being emotionally and psychologically and educationally damaged by this experience. Mm, well, I mean, we quite often hear uh, about people in adulthood uh, going for counselling as a, an example for things that they experienced in their childhood. Uh, and this is anxiety. Absolutely. And 
the, we've, we've set up tribunals of inquiry to look at what happened to children in institutions. Well, now we have children in institutions. We call them hubs. <laughs> and I think we will be setting up a, 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 an inquiry into how uh, damaged these children were by their experiences in hubs. And you can't blame uh, anybody now except the state. Mm. Uh, why do you say that? Because uh, we've been told uh, this is part of the solution. It's not the solution, but it's a step towards getting a home because it's better than living in a, a, a hotel room or a B&B because you have your own cooking facilities and that sort of thing. It is better than a hotel, but it's still emergency accommodation. And the, uh, the, you know, the family there and the young people there, they can't settle down. Mm. They don't know how long they could be there. It could be three months, it could be six months, it could be 12 months. They can't begin to make friends in the, in the neighbourhood. Parents don't know what school to send them to because they could be moved after a few months in, a, in the local school. Uh, children need security and they need routine uh, and they need to see where things are going for them. You can't do that in a hub. You can't settle down, integrate into the community, uh, become part of the community. And, and children and families mm. need that. Uh, so the hubs are, uh, the emphasis on the hubs, I'm afraid, is a little bit misplaced. Uh, all the emphasis is on uh, uh, getting more and more hubs to get more and more families out of hotels. Uh, I, I think we've lost sight of the fact that mm. you know, the solution to homelessness is give people a home. We need to start providing homes for families on a much bigger scale than we have been doing so Not Not a hub, not a hotel, not a, a direct provision centre, I'm sure you'd say as well, and not on grandmother's sofa or that your parents are on the sofa and everybody is crowded into the house somehow. Yeah, absolutely not. And those figures of 10,000, uh, they don't include... They don't include 855 refugees who have been granted status to remain in Ireland mm. but can't move out of direct provision because they can't find accommodation. doesn't include mothers and, and our families with children living in uh, refuges fleeing domestic violence. Mm. It doesn't include probably thousands of people who are sofa surfing uh, with, their, with their friends. There's a... You know, we, mm. we totally underestimate the, the, the level of homelessness. Uh, and, and probably... 10,000 is, is just, mm. I would say, it's probably double that. Uh, and undoubtedly doesn't uh, take account of the women and children who want to leave a domestic violence relationship because there's nowhere for them to go. They can't get into those refuges. That's right. Scandal is women and takes uh, mother takes the children, goes to a refuge, finds the refuge is full and uh, is forced go back to a violent home uh, again. Mm. They have no option. The response from government is as it has been for the last two years and has become somewhat predictable at this stage. Yeah, now we're three years, we're over three years into rebuilding Ireland. Rebuilding Ireland was the government's official uh, strategy to reduce homelessness. Here we are over three years into that and the number of homeless is still going up. And you mentioned at the beginning, the number of homeless has gone up uh, every month for the last seven months. It's actually gone up every month 
for the past three years. Mm. The only month that doesn't go up is December. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it, landlords don't throw people out of their private rented accommodation in December because they know they're not going to get anybody else to, to take it on in December mm. because everybody's focused on, on Christmas. But it, so it's exceeded that December, figure of 10,000 for the last seven months, uh, but uh, it yeah. probably should have exceeded it for much longer than that because certain people were taken off the uh, homeless list who would have been considered homeless previously. Yes, yeah, some local authorities, uh, if you are a homeless family, they will rent a, note, uh, they will rent a house and, and let you stay in it on a temporary basis. If you have the key of your own front door, you're not included in the homeless statistics, even though you're homeless. Mm. The homeless statistics only include those who are living in emergency hostels, in hubs and in uh, hotels and B&Bs. Mm. There are many, many others who are not. And they were taken out of the... They were taken out of the figures. About 1,600 of them were taken out of the figures about a year ago and have never been replaced. Okay, so when the government says, give us time, uh, you reject that, you say you've had time. When they say, look, it's not our, when they say it's, look, it's not our fault, there's more people becoming homeless than were homing, uh, you reject that because you would feel that that should have been predictable and accounted for. We could stop it. We could stop it. 70% of newly homeless people and families is coming from the private rented sector because the landlord says they're selling the house. That's the reason. I would make it illegal for the next three years, just for three years, to evict people into homelessness. And that would give us the opportunity to get to grips with this problem without the increasing numbers that we're seeing every every month. Now, that would be an inconvenience for some landlords, but it's not going to bankrupt any landlord. They, they, if they want to sell the house, they have to sell it with the tenant in place or they have to wait three years to sell the house. Okay. That, but the inconvenience to the landlord has to be balanced against the trauma that probably 3,000 families will experience homelessness over the next three years if we don't introduce legislation mm-hmm. like that. And the government have adamantly refused to introduce uh, legislation like that. Okay, well, uh, we'll uh, see if there's any improvement next month, but I, I gather from everything you've said, uh, you wouldn't be optimistic. We have to leave it there, though, for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. As always, Father Peter McVerry. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Busy on the phones, Marie? It sure is, Michael. Theresa from County Meath was uh, first on this morning. She was listening to the interview with Minister Helen McEntee and she's a big fan of Helen because of her work during Brexit. She feels that she should be left in charge of Brexit, that she's very good at explaining what is going on and seems to know what she's doing. I think she's much better than the Taoiseach, says Theresa. Simon Coveney is good, but Helen is magnificent. So there you go. (laughs) Jimmy phoned in and Jimmy doesn't believe that there will be a hard border but he would suggest to our government and he's saying Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, Michael, to get their finger out, uh, that all do what they have to do, that all this talk he believes is scaring the daylights out of people, especially old age pensioners who are worried about the budget. He believes that the government is using it to deflect from other big issues such as the hospital and the number of people on trolleys. It's gone beyond a joke. Scaremongering, that's all it is, says Jimmy. Mm, I'm not sure that it is, Jimmy. I'm not sure that uh, 
there's that much to be worried about and I'm not sure that we're not facing into Armageddon and I suppose that is uh, the problem we're talking in this vacuum and until this issue is settled uh, the outcome is completely unknown and the government has to be focused on it I think. Seamus from Dundalk, a regular caller in relation to Brexit, Michael, and wonders what you are thinking now. Do you still think that Brexit won't happen on October 31st and that there'll be a general election in the UK and then a referendum? Or do you think that Boris Johnson is just going to do what he wants and leave? Uh, no, I don't think he's going to do what he wants and leave. Uh, I don't think uh, it's going to happen on uh, the 31st. Uh, as uh, the Minister said in the interview this morning, uh, I don't think it's going to happen on uh, the 31st with a deal, even if a deal is agreed that uh, at this stage it's gone too late that to allow for uh, an agreed Brexit, there would have to be a small extension. Uh, to allow for an extension for a general election, uh, we're talking about uh, something a little bit more than that uh, probably going into the new year and uh, reports uh, this morning uh, that the European Union is looking at a six-month extension so that means that we could be here until about April I think. Jacqueline phoned in and she has a daughter living in the north and goes back all the time to see her and her daughter comes to you know to visit Mm -hmm. and uh, she says there's never any problem and she says that uh, is it the case that there will still be free travel movement even it's it's only custom posts at the moment that we're talking about and that's just mm-hmm. what she is seeking clarity on because she's worried that things will change after October 31st. Yeah well I don't think there's uh, going to be any change uh, to the common travel area uh, as it's known uh, across Ireland and to the United Kingdom uh, and uh, that, that won't be a, a, an obstacle for Irish people. There is concern uh, I think for some European who are living uh, in uh, England, uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and mm. as to what their status will be. Uh, some three million of them, uh, I think, uh, who are very worried about what all of this will mean. Uh, but for Irish people, there should be no issue about movement. Jack texts in, if Britain leave the EU, there will be border checks. Michael, simple as that. If you travel outside the EU, EU, you have custom checks and that's what's going to happen. So we may just get used to it, yeah, says Jack. I think he's uh, in agreement with Boris Johnson. Uh, the question is, how many borders will we have. Uh, we're talking about at least two. Uh, it seems as though there may be three uh, because there could be a buffer zone between, let's say, Dundalk and Newry, uh, which mm. would mean you'd have a, a border at Dundalk uh, and then you'd have this buffer zone and then you'd have another border at Newry. It's going to be uh, not very viable. Anyway, let's uh, talk about something far more interesting and uh, an issue uh, that uh, you may have come across. I'd be surprised if you haven't. It's one uh, that a lot of people are fed up with uh, and instead of complaining about the problem, we're joined by independent councillor Maeve Yor, who has uh, some proposed solutions for dealing with people who do not pick up after their dogs. Good morning, Maeve, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, what are you suggesting? Good morning, Michael. I have a few different suggestions that I have um, talked to Sean Canney about. He's the, uh, the minister, the junior minister responsible. So uh, some of the things are things like ensuring all dogs are chipped and that held, handheld devices are used by our dog and community wardens um, to identify the dogs and their owners of the dogs. At the moment, the dog wardens have to ask um, the dog walkers who they are and mm. You know, if it was Michael Reid out walking his dog, he yeah. might say, oh, I'm Maeve Yor. <laughs> you know, etc. <laughs> yeah. et I know what you know what mean, mean? yeah. So hey, 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 are they not meant to be chipped, though, at the moment? 
I think all dogs are meant to be chipped, but yeah. we have to mm. ensure that they, they are chipped. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, another idea um, would be to hand out the leaflets when we're issuing dog licenses, yeah. highlighting the health issues and the penalties incurred, and also ask them for their contact details so we can update them if any new bylaws or anything comes in mm. um, in relation to um, dog poos. Now, can I say that the majority... Uh, um, of dog owners are responsible dog owners and they do pick up after their dogs so it's a small minority that we're focusing on mm. that, like, and sometimes they let their children um, walk their dogs as well so we have to raise the awareness and we have to take action on the small minority of dog owners that um, do this Michael mm-hmm. um, also a- another idea would be maybe just to have designated zones in urban areas where dogs um, have to be kept on leashes Mm. Now, I'm sure bylaws and everything else would have to be introduced. And all of this and all of these ideas would only be in consultation with dog owners and dog rescue groups and relevant groups. You know what I mean? Mm. It wouldn't be that it's one rule suits all. It would have to be discussion, et cetera, et cetera, with all the hard work and dog rescue work and all that. It's interesting what you say about it being a minority of dog owners. I mean, all dogs go to the toilet, uh, but it's up to their dog owners uh, to pick up after them. And if you take your dog out in the morning and walk it up the street and it goes to the toilet and then again in the evening and it goes to the toilet and you don't pick up after it, that's... uh, two lumps uh, by the end yeah. by the end of the week it's 14 lumps exactly and I was driving around by Chapel Street one mm. day and there was a young adult now she wasn't even a teenager she was a young adult walking a big dog mm. and they are houses that the footpath you know when you open your front door it's the footpath okay mm. and this big dog was doing his business right outside the front door and I rolled down my window and I said sorry you know it's illegal to you know oh I just live down there and I'm coming back in a minute now to um, I ran out of bags and I'm coming back in a minute now when I was doing the school run mm. four, f- five or six hours later that dog who was still sitting outside that person's front door and I mean people I, I wouldn't want to open my front door and dog poo and mm. I'm sure she wouldn't either mm. you know what I mean so it's just a matter of raising public awareness offering solutions Sean Canney is more than willing, um, he's an independent um, TD, and he's more than willing to take on ideas, mm. and he's more than willing to have consultation with dog owners, dog groups, you know, rescue things, mm. ISPCA groups, they're all fabulous. TDs. Actually, I heard the story the other day, very like the one you're telling, uh, but mm. uh, instead of uh, the person appealing to the dog owner to pick it up after them, they went and got a shovel, <laughs> and they picked it up for them, and then they followed them <laughs> them home and left yeah, it in their garden. Put it outside yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, there would yeah, not yeah, be a yeah, thing to yeah, do. Yeah, do. Yeah, like, I wouldn't be recommended yeah, yeah. <laughs> to do that. I could get yeah, in trouble saying that. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah. I mean, none of us want it outside our front door. There's health implications for mm. old people. There's health implications, you know, on buggies. We know all the, the mm. health implications in relation to dog people. Yeah. It's just a matter of raising public awareness, getting different solutions. And if anybody wants to contact me with solutions that they have about dog calling, yeah. just email me and I'll certainly... Okay. Um, and the Mount Shaw as well. Yeah. All right, a little bit of uh, enforcement, uh, more people policing it, uh, and perhaps uh, cleaning the streets uh, uh, and yeah, more and streets a, a little bit more often would help as well. Either, Michael. Mm-hmm. Not just a nine to five, that yeah. the dog and litter wardens, maybe, and community wardens, maybe can go out at different. Ah, uh, but sure, there's only two of them for the whole county, and they're the litter wardens, and they've so much to do apart from all of that. I don't well, think it's actually it, being policed it, at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've okay. six, mm-hmm. I was told we have six so, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the county, so. So community wardens now as well. So hopefully we can get working on it and get solutions and get a dog poo free zone 
in County Loud. Okay, thank you indeed. That's uh, Independent uh, Councillor Maeve Yor. Now let's go back uh, to the phones. What else have you got for us there, Marie? Just staying with Brexit for the moment, Mary says, interesting, Michael, to see what Boris Johnson has to say today. Can't think that what he is going to propose will be anything groundbreaking or imaginative. They've had so long to come up with something and still nothing yet, says mm, Mary. Okay. On the moving of the Garda HQ, uh, Margaret phoned in to say, oh, Michael, I don't understand why anyone thought it wise to move the divisional HQ out of the county that is the most densely populated. I think it is a huge blow to me and there is no doubt that we will lose out because of this. There is a huge issue with antisocial behaviour right across the county. I don't know. That's I'd it. say there is some doubt. I'd say it uh, could be for the better. Uh, I mean, there's uh, some uh, very good policing minds uh, being applied to this uh, and they're looking at the structuring of policing and hopefully they have it right I don't know but uh, I'd say there's uh, some doubt and time will tell whether they're right or wrong Now Dublin South West TD Paul Murphy has left Solidarity and indeed the Socialist Party to form a new political grouping called Rise and he's on the line with us now and a very good morning to you Paul Murphy Uh, as an independent TD is it? Good morning Michael No I'll be continuing as part of the Solidarity for profit grouping inside uh, the doll uh, and standing as part of solidarity people for profit for the next uh, elections um, and I think that's you know a certain illustration of how this parting of the ways has happened obviously it's um, always regrettable um, when you have a division like this on, on the left but we're doing it in such a way as to minimize the disruption to ensure the maximum unity on all of the things that we continue to agree on, which is still, you know, the vast majority of things to continue to work together uh, very close, closely in the parliament, in the course of elections, etc., um, while mm. building our own political group rise uh, as a part of, uh, a component part of Solidarity People Before Profit. But you've uh, left like the Solidarity. Socialist Party. I- exactly. What, what did the Socialist Party ever do in you? Socialist Party has done uh, a tremendous amount of very good things uh, in Irish society, um, from the role in the struggle against uh, the bin charges, struggle mm. against the water charges, mm. struggle for abortion rights, mm. um, and, and building support for socialist ideas, building a socialist uh, organisation. Um, so the Socialist Party hasn't done anything bad uh, on me. Um, mm. well, what has happened? I'd, I'd, I'd have thought the opposite, really. Uh, and I, I was wondering, uh, when I was asking that question, uh, what Joe Higgins had to say about your decision, or if you've spoken to your mentor, because uh, you assumed his seat in Europe uh, when he won a doll seat. I did. Um, I think Joe would see that these things are political, they're not at all personal, um, and that we had, you know, an intensive debate over the course of a year inside the Socialist Party, mostly focused on questions of strategy, uh, of how are we, how should we be building the socialist movement today? What is the relationship between building a distinct, clear socialist party or trend and the building of a broader movement of the left, broader social movements like on the environment and women's mm-hmm. rights, workers' rights and the broader left party? Did you fall out and with Joe Higgins? No, not at all. I, Joe and I would be on opposite sides of, of the debate, and so we would have... Um, you fell out with him. Ideologically, you fell out with him. Uh, I mean, not even ideologically. Um, mm. we, we have a, a difference on strategy, which in the context of a small party like the Socialist Party 
uh, can become quite important. Uh, and where we felt at the end of the year, rather than pulling apart within one organisation, it was better to go our separate ways to test out and practice yeah. our different approaches and to continue to work together, but as not as part of the one socialist party, but as, as two uh, organisations on the left that have a lot uh, in common and to see how, how that goes. It, it, was that disloyal of you? Uh, I mean, he gave you a political career. Without being elected, you took a, a very big job with a very big profile and a seat in the European Parliament, all with thanks to Joe Higgins. And now you've left him without a TD in the doll. So I, I think, thankfully, um, Joe would not see these things in terms of, of loyalty. These are political questions. Um, you have a you know, very important movement taking place across the world. Uh, you have the re-emergence of socialist ideas like seen in the US with Bernie Sanders, with AOC, with Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. And socialists really around the world, it's not just in Ireland, are debating how to relate to this situation. Um, and we would have placed an emphasis on the need for socialists to be a part of these movements. Mm. You know, if we were in America, to be part of the Democratic Socialists of America, if you're in the Labour Party, if, in Britain, to try to be part of the Labour Party and to really engage in those debates there at the same time as building um, socialist organisations. Um, and for us to place an emphasis on the need for what we call eco-socialist uh, policies, an eco-socialist programme to bring to the fore the question of climate catastrophe, and the need for radical policies to, to deal with it. Okay, uh, there has been six solidarity people before profit TDs. Three of them are people before profit TDs. The three solidarity TDs were Mick Barry, Ruth Coppinger, and yourself, Paul Murphy. Uh, but uh, have you severed your ties with Mick Barry and Ruth Coppinger? No, so we, we will still all continue together as part of solidarity people before profit. The six of us, as before, you know, from the point of view of parliamentary time or whatever, there'll be sure. no yeah. visible uh, difference. Um, and, you know, we, we have said we're, we're very happy to support, for example, in, in there's going to be a by-election in McBarry's um, constituency, and Fiona Ryan has been selected by Solidarity as the candidate. Mm. We're very happy to support Fiona Ryan to do what we can to try and assist uh, Solidarity in getting the best possible result. Um, and we're also saying that in the three other areas where the by-elections are taking place, we, we would like to play a role in seeing if we could ensure that you know credible, mm. radical left challenges are put forward in all of the areas on a united basis. We're not interested in standing ourselves, mm. but if we can play a role in a small way of you know helping to achieve that, that can be a step to achieving the broader left party and okay, mass party but, but, of workers but, that we need. But am I right in thinking your alignment uh, to those two TDs is the same as it would be with Gino Kenny or Richard Boyd Barrett or Breed Smith, the three people before profit TDs, and that in fact what you're talking about now is people before profit solidarity rise? Yes, in effect. Although rise won't be entering into the name of solidarity people before profit. I think we have enough words in the mm. name without adding the word rise. But exactly, rise is now a component part uh, of solidarity, people for profit, effectively a third leg mm. of a, of a three-legged uh, uh, alliance, and you know that uh, for us that is the is the closest thing you have to mm. uh, a left alliance, a new left movement in this country. It's obviously insufficient. We think we need something deeper, a party, mm. um, but it's a step in the right direction, and so we definitely want to step away from that in declaring our interest in building a, a broader left and arguing for socialist policies. But is it also right to say that it's uh, people before profit solidarity, Paul Murphy, and a handful of supporters? 
No. Um, I mean, people should go onto our website, uh, letusrise.ie. They should check out our What We Stand For uh, column. We've been. But how many of you are you? We're small, um, but we have been inundated by people contacting us since we've we've launched. I mean, we're completely swamped at the moment, so if people have contacted us, I just apologise. We'll be back to people mm. as soon as is uh, possible. Well, I'm reading so, this I mean, morning. I'm reading this morning that there's less than a dozen of you. I know. I, I read that myself. That, that's definitely not accurate. Don't worry. We're small, but we're not that small. Um, but look, we, we're very definitely not calling ourselves uh, a party because we're modest about what we are. We're a group. We want to be part of a left party. We want to contribute to the building of a left party at the same time as arguing for the socialist policies that we think we, we need. Um, so we're modest. We're not but setting ourselves you, up as the saviours of the left or anything like that. But you don't come across as a team player. I mean, if we look at your relationship with Joe Higgins, if we look at your now defunct relationship with the Socialist Party, your now defunct relationship with Solidarity, uh, and uh, now uh, a completely divided left as a, a result of the decision you've made, uh, which I'm not sure you have explained at this stage. Well, I think people should judge us, Rise, on that, on our actions in the next number of months. I think we will prove very definitely to be team players on the left. We will prove to put the interests of the broader left and the rebuilding of the left movement ahead of simply the narrow interests of our own group. Um, I say that with a lot of confidence, Mm. but I would ask people to judge us on our actions over the next number of months. And I think they can see that in a contradictory way, um, this division can actually help to bring about uh, more left unity, more left cooperation. Okay, well, what will Rise bring to the table that will be different than the Socialist Party, that will be different than Solidarity, People Before Profit, uh, the Workers' Party, Independence for Change, the Communist Party, so on? The the key thing we're going to be launching in the next couple of weeks is a Socialist uh, Green New Deal for Ireland. Um, There's five key components of that, which is a programme to... You know, a transformative programme to address the ecological crisis that we face and the coming economic crisis and to achieve a zero net carbon economy by 2030. So number one is free, green and frequent public transport. Number two is a massive green jobs programme in renewable energy and retrofitting in care jobs. Three is a transition to sustainable agriculture. Four is a four-day week without loss of pay. And five is democratic public ownership of the key sections of the economy so that we can plan to rapidly transition in a just way away from reliance on carbon. Right. Would you join the Green Party? No, we, we, we won't be joining the Green Party. I think um, there are very good people uh, who support the Green Party. Um, there's people like Saoirse McHugh, who obviously uh, describes herself as an eco-socialist. I'd say we have a lot of common ground with, with someone like Saoirse McHugh. Um, but obviously the Green Party leadership at this stage is you know, very definitely pro-capitalist, pro-managing the capitalist system, we saw the consequences of that the last time they were in power, both in terms of, you know, completely inadequate, barely noticeable action on the environment, but also signing up to the Troika deal, imposing this massive austerity on people. And I think, unfortunately, the Green Party leadership is oriented to positioning themselves to go back into government with Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, which, again, I think will be a disaster. I think, like, a bottom-line position for the left has to be no coalition with the right, stand for a government of the left which has left-wing policies rather than just kind of giving a left cover to the old establishment parties. Okay, Uh, have you fallen at the first hurdle though if you haven't been able to convince uh, the people that you've been working with all along that this is the right direction to go in and you find yourself on a solo run now? 
No, we're not on a solo run. Um, I mean, the Socialist Party is made up of, obviously, councillors, obviously TDs. The most important thing about the Socialist Party is its activists. People who are hugely dedicated, people who are working in the trade union movement, in the abortion rights movement, in housing, etc. And we have a really important group of dedicated activists who have drawn certain conclusions from their involvement in those movements and about how those movements can be built and from the debate we've been through in the Socialist Party. And I'm really confident in the group that we have and in the people who are contacting us now who have been involved in other groups on the left, who have never been involved in any organised group or involved in social movements and who also want to play a role in building rise as a radical, socialist, environmentalist, left, uh, internationalist organisation. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, we'll uh, be speaking to you and uh, undoubtedly other members of uh, the RISE grouping in uh, the days, weeks, months and years ahead. But uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, Solidarity People Before Profit TD. Paul Murphy, who's a TD for Dublin South West and the founder of the new RISE political grouping. Parents of uh, children who attend uh, Colossal Lou are at their wits' end and they're taking their children out of school as we speak. They're on the way to the doll where they'll be staging a protest today, appealing to the Minister to save the Irish education system in County Louth. And uh, the Minister may come out and meet them. I don't know what's going to happen there or if uh, they'll get much support when they go to the doll. We asked. Uh, the minister to speak to us. He said he's not available to speak to us. He says he's already spoken to uh, the parents and that it's a matter for the school authorities. Uh, We'll hear from uh, the parents uh, about what happens outside of uh, the doll when they'll stage that protest at 12 o'clock today on tomorrow's programme. But it comes on foot of a very lengthy meeting, a 10-hour meeting with TDs uh, that took place earlier this week and uh, the subject uh, was the establishment of an Irish language and Gael talk investment plan which would create 2,000 jobs. Uh, this is according to Conrad Nagelige. Its General Secretary is Julian Despan, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. You're looking for morning, 5 million euro to be allocated in uh, the budget. We are, yeah. But just before I get inside, if yep. you don't mind, I'd just like to say that we're, we're standing 100% with the parents and the students of Cloche de today, and we're sure. going to be outside the doll with them. And sure. I know a number of other people are coming today as well. And it just is it's disgraceful it's got to the point where the, the parents and students have to come to Dublin to put their views forward. And it is something we brought up with the politicians last week as well, mm. and there was huge support amongst the politicians. And they realised, you know, look, these people were doing... Uh, doing all their subjects to write before the summer, they should still be doing them now. So there mm. needs to be a solution. As they say, Minister uh, for Education, Joe McHugh, which was a huge interest in the Irish language, uh, we would hope that he will be able to come up with a solution for them because, you know, the time is ticking and, you know, it's very hard yeah. on the parents and the students. Well, I had uh, I hoped to, to talk to you about it, and I know that you have yeah. taken an interest in it, uh, Julian, but the Minister says uh, it's nothing to do with him. It's up to the school authorities, and the school authorities say that they haven't got the wherewithal uh, to provide this education, that there aren't uh, enough students and enough teachers for that matter. Yeah, well, you see, I suppose at the end of the day, the way we look at it is that the book stops with the Minister at the end of the day. There's a problem here um, that needs to be solved. Um, it's a it's it's risen because of what whatever has happened. You, you, you did. Some people can put it down to resourcing. The other way we put it down to is look at the end of the day. There was all subjects were provided to Irish for them before the summer. Now they're not. 
that's a huge problem that needs mm. to be solved. And there are different ways of solving the problem, but it, it will take the will and the support of the minister as well, um, not only to, to, to solve this problem, and we are trying to work with them as well. So, you know, that's what they're asking for today, is the minister to get more involved in it and to make sure that they come up with a solution before we lose this great opportunity for providing Irish medium education in this part of the, of the country. You know, if, yeah. if we lose it in Dundalk, then you're going to have a big black spot when it comes to, you know, students are coming through grade school and then not having that second level to go to as well. So hopefully, yeah. you know, hopefully the minister will, will be able to do something. Hopefully he'll come on board and be able to um, make sure that, that this is situation is resolved. Because at the end of the day, you know yourself, Michael, at the end of the day, it's students like, you know, that are, 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 are have been affected by this. There are students mm-hmm. there that will be going into junior search, be going into leave and search. And to have them, you know, ha- having done their education through Irish, all of a sudden have to do mm. through English, that must be so difficult for them. Yeah, and because because they've been learning through Irish, many of them uh, would have two ing- uh, two two languages. Uh, they yeah. speak English and Irish. Uh, some of them would have two languages, uh, English or Irish and Polish, uh, rather, which yeah. is is the case with some of the students. Some of them can't speak yeah. English. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And so it's going to be tremendously difficult for them. We know that students who come into uh, um, Irish medium second education in first year, there's a transitional time when they get to know, you know, that they get to know from English medium, that they, they you know, get to know the terms, get to know how uh, the subjects are done in, in Irish. But to go the other way around, I mean, for a student who's done their primary school and secondary school all through Irish, um, already and then to have to change over to English I mean it's just adding a huge burden to them and when they're thinking you know you're going to think about they're looking at you know what you know um, what, what CAO they're going to put, look for what they're going to you know what courses they're going to be looking for in yeah. the future is that going to have a detrimental damage to what what they can actually do in the future so it's just it's just very very important and I can understand the urgency to this with the parents and the uh, students because they need this resolved now they can't wait for a you know, a talks process that might take a long time. They need to get this solved now for their for their children. And I can completely understand where the parents are coming from. Okay, uh, let's uh, talk uh, about this investment plan uh, that you've uh, been proposing. Uh, you've uh, agreed it apparently with eighty eight Irish language and Gaelic talks groups. What's envisaged? Yeah, well, basically, it's the, the investment plan is to, to look at um, providing more opportunities to use Irish in the community. So we're talking there about using Irish in school. And I think very much we do uh, recognise that an awful lot of what we do when it comes to language promotion is in the schools. But what happens after school? How do we bring Irish more into the community? So some of what we've, we've been looking for is, for example, to have Irish language coordinators um, that can actually bring groups together. So if it was a case that they were in a town, they'd bring them maybe the library, the schools, the, um, you know, the community centres, wherever there are, you know, groups of active people in the community together and put a plan together to try and promote the Irish more, um, organise Irish language events and all the rest. And there's a number of examples of this in the country already, but there's only it's too few. At the moment, there's about six coordinators in the south, uh, which is very few. And it's only a few towns. You've got Clondalk and you've got Ennis, you've got... Uh, lock Ray. So we're saying we need to, to have a lot more of those coordinators. And what we found when the mm. coordinators actually work very well, what happens after a while is that they actually then look towards having a hub for the Irish language in whatever town or city that they're situated in. Um, and again, that's a focus point then for the community. They know if I go into this building, well, there may be a cafe through Irish, there may be, you know, classes through Irish, there may be coffee mornings, there may be um, groups for parents and children who are bringing their children up to Irish or, mm. you know, so these sort of have hubs. So these are the different things that we're looking for. And then the other thing that I suppose is very important to us as well is that every 
student would have the opportunity to attend the Grealtic if they want to attend the Grealtic. So there'd be a scholarship system there for students who come from backgrounds that wouldn't have the financial resources to send their children to the Grealtic because it, it is, you know, it's not it's not cheap. Uh, mm-hmm. While it is very reasonable, it, it's not cheap. And, you know, um, you know, we think students should have that access. And would they speak Irish when they're there? Because apparently a lot of people living in the Gaeltox don't speak Irish. Oh, well, it's depends on where you are in the Gaeltox. Um, mm. Obviously, there's a stronger and weaker Gaeltox. Um, and, you know, for example, um, uh, Clare Galway is included in the Gaeltox area, mm. but you wouldn't find many people there speaking Irish. But then if you go into into um, proper Gaeltox, you know, um, um, like uh, in Connemara and in, in, in Cairo, for example, mm. or in these places, you know, there's huge amounts um, of the community that would speak Irish. Uh, but the Irish Summer College is being, are going from strength to strength. You know, they're, they're, they're fantastic opportunities for people to get some of the richness of the language, uh, which is, you know, something that can help them in, you know, in, in later life when back in school and everything else, you know, and, and so there's great opportunities there in the Gaeltic, but just to try and make sure that people get that chance if, if they're looking for it. And €5 million Euro is a lot of money, um, maybe not uh, a lot uh, in the overall context of government spending, but it is a, a lot of money nonetheless. Uh, how, how does uh, that fare in terms of investment uh, to result in 2,000 jobs? That seems like a, a lot of jobs, despite uh, the amount of money. Uh, it seems like a, a lot of jobs for €5 million. Euro. Yeah, well, it's actually an, an overall plan that we were looking for, which was €18 million over the space of three years. And we've already had 6.3 million allocated to that already. And the vast majority of the jobs uh, would be in the Gweltacht areas because uh, the Gweltacht at the moment has, has suffered from a huge depopulation, like in many other rural com- uh, communities. But the IDA and the Enterprise Ireland don't function in those areas. It's more Uderos and Gweltacht that do. And they had their budget, their capital budget for creating jobs reduced in from 2008 when it was 25 million down to 7 million two years ago. Um, so at the same time, the IDA and Enterprise Ireland were given more money, especially in those dark days when, you know, when, and jobs were being lost in the country by the thousands. And, and rightly so, because you should be financing the job creation bodies um, in a time when you need to create employment. But for some reason in the Gweltacht areas, it was slashed um, immensely. So what we're looking for is some of that some of that funding back. It would actually bring the yeah. funding for job creation in the graduate up to twelve million, which is less than half of what it was anyway in twelve in two thousand eight. We're trying to be realistic. We're trying to be, you know, and say we're not looking for all the money back that the Gratic and the Gregor had in two thousand eight, but it's actually five million less we'll be looking for. Uh, but so this plan is sort of trying to be uh, we're trying to look at it as an investment as well, because obviously any job that are created brings money into the um, community as well. Uh, we know any of those coordinators that are employed in the South, for example, um, they say they might get about maybe about forty to fifty thousand euros as an investment, um, but they will then create at least that, if not double or triple that amount of money from the from the. Um, uh, the activity that comes along with, with having a coordinator in, a, in an area. Okay. What has the response uh, from the TDs been? Very, very uh, good, yeah. Um, on the day, we had a huge amount of people in, uh, especially from Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, Independence. We had a few from Labour and then um, a few from Fianna Gael as well. And uh, they're all very supportive. They see that, you know, the language is very important to invest in, that, you know... It, 
if we are serious about you know promoting the language then we need to be creating those opportunities for people to use it and I think that's very much what we're doing with the plan but we were looking at the plan as I mentioned there as an investment it's not just Mm. Um, money for the sake of money it's an investment there will actually be a return to the state as well not only in a financial return but also anything you do with you know um, increasing the amount of user action everything and the more bilingual we become um, the better that is for uh, learning a third language better for the, um, the the general economy trying to bring in you know foreign investment and everything else because you know, learning languages is good. Being bilingual is good. Um, you know, it's good for problem solving. It's good for. There's a host of reasons why that's actually good for good for us. So. Okay, we leave there for the moment. But uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on this morning, Julian Despan, who's uh, general secretary of Conran Gaelica. And as I said, uh, we'll hear from parents and students of Colossaloo on tomorrow's program. Now, as you know, the government has illegally introduced or expanded the use of the public services card to to services other than what it was originally intended for, which was for accessing social welfare. Now, we don't know uh, how much has been spent, uh, although we have heard a figure of 64 million. The government says it can't say how much has been spent on introducing this or uh, how much it might spend on defending Uh, case in the courts against the state watchdog who has said that it was uh, illegally introduced uh, and indeed that the government has been holding data on people illegally and that that should be deleted. Uh, The government has uh, disputed all of this and uh, it was raised in the doll yesterday and once again Minister Pascal Donoghue stood over the card itself and also his minister who oversaw the introduction of the card, Regina Doherty. Uh, The deputy referred to me being in the dock uh, on this matter uh, and uh, I of course uh, understand very fully the views of the Data Protection Commissioner they're an organisation and institution that I take very very seriously in fact in each of the budgets that I've done I've made more resources available to them because I do believe they're a very important organisation for the management of information uh, both for the private sector and for government But, Deputy, the reason why uh, I have taken, and I have taken, a different view in relation to the role of the Public Service Card has been on the back of legal advice that has been made available to me. And I and Minister Doherty did not take lightly the decision that we made to offer a differing view to that of the Public Service, of the uh, Data Protection Commissioner. But it was done after we got legal advice in relation to where we stood that left me satisfied that the card is on robust legal standing and that the appropriate course was to make clear that we take a different view in relation to the Commissioner on this issue. And I know she has now spoken to the Oireachtas in relation to the issue and has indicated the course of action that she's likely to take. Okay, no doubt we'll hear more about that in the coming days. Uh, That's uh, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, who was responding to Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty in the Dáil yesterday. The Michael Reed Show. Uh, you just can't get the staff. Uh, that seems uh, to be the message from uh, the National Recruitment Federation. The reason, it seems, is that affordable living in the greater Dublin area has become impossible for practically all but the top paid workers. Let's speak with Ed Heffernan, who's treasurer of the National Recruitment Federation. A very good morning to you, Ed, and thanks for joining us. And uh, the problem is twofold, isn't it? Housing and commuting. Correct. 
correct. I guess, um, uh, Michael, the, the, the simple premise is that um, um, people want to have proximity between where they work and where they live. <clears throat> and that's not just um, highly paid people in the financial services sector, but it's for, 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 the, for the, the normal people in Dublin, mm. right? Um, and the reality is that um, 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 the, the, the chronic um, uh, shortage in terms of houses, I guess the situation we've seen unfold in the last four or five years in the rental market uh, is making it increasingly unsustainable in terms of your, your, your average salary employee living anywhere near close proximity to, 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 to their job. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, if you look at the, the highest density of, um, I guess, vacancies uh, across the Irish market, it is Dublin city centre, Dublin south. Okay. okay, and many of um, our listeners yeah. are, are, are travelling into Dublin, obviously from yeah. counties Louth and Meath every day, yeah. and uh, many yeah. of them are, are living in these counties because they can't afford housing in, in Dublin. The price of housing yeah. is increasing here, but uh, now they find themselves in expensive houses, uh, taking mm-hmm. this commute, the cost of uh, the travel and the cost of parking when they arrive. Yes, exactly. And um, um, I guess we're not even factoring into that the, the denudation of quality of life when you're spending, you know, 90 minutes a day each way yep. in and out of in and out of Dublin city centre. Uh, having your tea on your lap. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Putting yeah. your makeup on in the car, yeah. right? Mm. So, 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 and, and I guess so. So, it's 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 the, the NRF's position is this is this is twofold. Yes, it is. Um, a, I guess a chronic need for the increased supply of 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 of, of affordable uh, um, um, accommodation um, um, within the Greater Dublin area, but also it's to do with the investment in infrastructure. And the problem is, uh, Michael, that these things are not fast fixes. No. We've obviously got the Project Ireland Plan at 2040, okay, but the reality is that we're decades away from the alleviation of many of these problems. Um, we also have some, 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 I guess, suggestions out there, um, such as the move, the movement of Dublin Port, etc. Okay, which you know, um, I, I do believe that maybe Green Ore or other locations were suggested as 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 as, as possible alternatives. Um, but those, uh, so those projects do, I guess, warrant further investigation. But again, we're talking decades. Mm. Uh, it's not a short-term solution. Uh, and uh, schemes uh, that would make it more uh, affordable for people, mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, Public transport is something that's lacking for people who are commuting, uh, and those who are commuting are, are facing into a higher cost because of carbon taxes increasing. Correct, correct. So, so it's almost like it's it's uh, we're, we're in a type of spiral situation when when it comes to these factors. You know, with things things we we have we have uh, the infrastructure that we have is for 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 the Dublin that was there eight or nine years ago. We should be building for the Dublin that we're we're going to have in in 2050 and 60. So 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 the the reality is that um, unfortunately we're, we're we're suffering at the hands of decisions that were made during a time when our economy was going through a depression, and it's going to take us a good bit of time to get out of that. You okay. know, and I guess there's there's another factor here too, Michael. If we have time, mm. um, I guess um um, uh, um the reality is when you have um, um rental prices where they are. Right, uh, that's causing an inflation in in the terms of of wages, and that inflation in terms of wages is itself making Ireland increasingly uncompetitive. Okay, mm-hmm. so 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 there's a there's a there's, there's an actual real kind of worry here. There's Ireland becomes less competitive, will attract less employment, and 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 that this will have further reaching effects um, um, that are kind of maybe unintended consequences. 
Okay, and I think that's, that's something that we need to sit up and pay 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 close attention to. And you're asking the government uh, to renew that help to buy scheme to help people to own their own properties. Yes, yes, indeed, it's it's one of a, a number of I, I guess um, 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 measures that are, are are set out. And the reality is, it just gives certainty, I guess, to this to the construction industry, which might it, itself just alleviate some of the supply problems. Okay, mm-hmm. but it is—it's a multifaceted problem. There is no one fast fix. It needs a blended solution mm. uh, and uh, complicated because of, of that. Uh, but very simple to understand. There's a, a lot of job vacancies uh, that you're aware of that can't be filled because of these problems. We'll leave it there for the moment, Ed. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Ed Heffernan, who is the treasurer of the National Recruitment Federation. Now, we're going to hear later today this proposal from Boris Johnson from the British government about two borders and the idea of different... Uh, situation for Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, albeit for uh, a short period of time. And now, Northern Ireland, as we've been hearing all along, uh, doesn't want to leave Europe in a different way than the rest of the United Kingdom. But it, it seems as though, whilst this proposal may be unacceptable to everybody else in the world, it may be acceptable to Arlene Foster. That's if her introduction to Boris Johnson at a DUP event at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester yesterday evening was anything to go by. And I now want to introduce a man who is not only a good friend to me, he is a fabulous friend to the union and a promoter of the union. Well, a lot of support there for Boris Johnson from members of uh, the DUP and others. Of course, he continues uh, to enjoy the support of Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he's been speaking to Channel 4 News uh, about these proposals and the backstop. The backstop, the Prime Minister's been clear, must go, the undemocratic backstop must go, that we cannot allow Northern Ireland to be subject to EU rules, and we cannot separate Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that things that currently go on, on an all-of-Ireland basis, such as cytosanitary checks, any cattle or live animals going from Scotland over to Northern Ireland are individually checked. Nobody's proposing that that has to be changed, but to set up a completely different system uh, would be the wrong thing to do in terms of unionism, but also in terms of the Um, trade flows because the majority of Northern Ireland's flows comes into the rest of the United Kingdom, not across the border with the Republic of Ireland. So you would be ignoring the bulk of Northern Ireland's trade. Jacob Rees-Mogg speaking to Channel 4 News. They know what they're talking about. I'm sure we'll all understand it later on this evening uh, when we get the detail of these proposals. But that's where we have to leave you for today. Our time has run out on us once again. Uh, Podcast available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marie in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.